miss the show, no worries on point and on the podcast for tonight. Mask, don't mask, put up plexiglass, now take it down because it's dangerous. Uh, public health is flip-flopping again on things we've been told we have to do and have to wear to stay safe. We've got all these businesses that spent tens of thousands of dollars on things like plexiglass only to be told now it's dangerous. We'll talk about the mixed messaging and why it's being once again flipped on its head. Uh, the chorus of calls growing louder for a boycott of the Beijing Games as concern over the safety of this Chinese tennis player grows. We're going to talk to a former ambassador who was involved in the boycott of the Soviet Union, the Games back in 1980. And he says diplomatic boycotts are not just wimpy, but it's going to put our athletes at risk. So he says boycotts have to be all or nothing. They cannot be in between. We'll talk about also why the Trudeau government is in court right now taking a Chinese mobile company to task because it is a threat to our national security. And this is one, an issue that we are behind the United States on. They kicked this company out years ago. But this speaks to the reason why our 5 Eye partners are absolutely fed up and moving on without us because of our wimpy response to China. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. People without children, seniors, those who have school-aged children are buying bacon, bread, eggs, clothing, rent, and this is costing them. But it's very disappointing to have a prime minister who is so out of touch. The only thing he might be worried about is if the cost of surfboards go up. I guess he'll worry about that. The answer, Mr. Trudeau, is no. You have no clue about actual cost of living struggles. Alex Pearson with you on Wednesday, November 24th. It is uh, great to have you along for the ride. Of course, for many, I think a lot of people here do take the day off uh, to celebrate our friends across the borders Thanksgiving. It's a hard day to work because you just know so many people aren't working. And it's very hard to book a lot of people because they take four days off. they got the football, the parades, the Black Friday uh, shopping, which apparently now is racist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so uh, enjoy the day to family and friends. And um, for us, it's actually turned out to be a pretty... Busy news day, given that it can be very quiet. And in part, and I'll explain this a little bit later, uh, it's because our American friends, Mr. Biden, is screwing us yet again. But I'll get to that. So, as you well know, uh, there has been literally zero urgency for the Prime Minister to get Parliament back to business. I mean, it took two months after the election. But even before that, I think people forget, MPs have not sat in Parliament since June. So... Six months of getting nothing done. Not their fault. But now MPs are going to work a total of 19 days before going on break again. And I'm quite sure this is all done by design. I mean, it's certainly not in Mr. Trudeau's interest to, you know, sit and be drilled in the House daily with questions he clearly won't and can't answer. Like, I don't know, how do you make life more affordable for that middle class you champion? Or how do you control the inflation? But then you got to go back. I mean, Trudeau himself admits he doesn't focus on monetary issues. So I don't know. Like, do we expect some sudden financial light bulb moment with this guy? 
You'll forgive no. me if I don't think about monetary policy. Uh, you'll understand that I think about families. Mm-hmm. Sadly, uh, he doesn't want to talk about finances, you know, and so that's why we keep seeing him as well as the MPs in his party just keep wedging Aaron O'Toole and the vaccine mandates that have just become a media obsession. And it's clear that the conservatives are now trying to turn the page, and I sure hope they do, but they're trying to pin Trudeau down on what should be talked about, which is inflation. And Trudeau won't touch it. So every time he's asked a question by the opposition, we literally get the same spin. Here's his response to MP Candace Bergen's grilling on affordability. Does he know what a loaf of bread costs now, or maybe a can of beans, or a package no, bacon? He Thank you. The right honorable prime minister. Mr. Speaker, in the conversations I've had with Canadians over the past number of months, two things kept coming back as their greatest concerns. Uh, one was the rising costs of childcare and how much it costs their family. Two was their concerns about the housing crisis we're living. Mm-hmm. Right. So the answer is, again, no. Trudeau has no clue what a loaf of bread costs. And not just because he's a prime minister, but because he's part of the 1%. And cost of living for him has never and will never be an issue. Ever, ever, ever. And so Trudeau's talking point to inflation is going to be the same every day. Child care and housing, child care and housing. It's a talking point. That's it. And they're hollow. Because the fine print, if you read it and check into it, reveals that child care across this country won't be 10 bucks. Certainly not in Ontario until at least 2026. And when it comes to housing affordability, he can't detail it because it's a supply issue. I mean, you have to have supply to solve the issue. And unless Mr. Trudeau's out building homes at night after work, we don't have the supply. So we're, we're, we're years away from it. And frankly, if he were serious at all about, you know, doing something, he's had six years to stop all the Chinese money laundering across this country that's ravaging not just our economy, but driving up housing costs in areas like, well, everywhere. But um Given all real estate is also driving our economy, uh, cooling the market doesn't necessarily help Mr. Trudeau's political fortunes. It's kind of like a chasing of the tail. But, you know, we live in this age where we have somehow become comfortable with just spin and deflection, spin and deflection. There's never accountability of politicians. And it's going to get much worse at the federal level because tonight during the show, the liberals helped by the NDP will be voting back a hybrid parliament. So, yes, as the rest of us, plebes, uh, you know, go back to work, our politicians are going to be doing Zoom parliaments that in no way serve Canadians, but certainly do serve the prime minister because, once again, liberals and the prime minister will be able to hide behind their computers and run out the clock with their talking points, which then shields the prime minister from actual scrutiny, which is why Aaron O'Toole came out today and said, yeah, he's voting against it. What I'm not going to allow to happen is for Mr. Trudeau not to be accountable. In fact, today, the vote tonight is about him not being accountable to Canadians for the next six to eight months. As I said, he'll go to meetings, he'll hold elections. I just left chamber where liberals are hugging and having fun. There's no need for him to go to a hybrid session. It's, it's irresponsible. It's the height of hypocrisy. Gee, I hope they're all vaccinated. Hugging, having fun. I mean, sure, hammer O'Toole over all the vaccine mandate crap. Have at her. But it would be just great if the media 
which, by the way, will get much less access to Trudeau with a hybrid parliament. I mean, maybe they can spare a question for him and have him justify why it's you know safe for him to travel all over Europe and go to bars and hang out and party and whatever, not with a mask. Uh, he can hold an election. And you got most MPs vaccinated and masked, yet somehow it's not safe enough for MPs to physically go to work? I mean, are you kidding me? I'm embarrassed for them. Because there's plenty this government needs to answer for. I mean, scandal is guaranteed with the Trudeau government. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. And there are several investigations that have now been reopened, including why two Chinese military scientists got access to a Winnipeg lab and have now scurried off back to China. I mean, those are things... They don't want to talk about. And so a hybrid parliament will suit them and Mr. Trudeau just fine. But Mr. Trudeau really does need to answer, and this came out today, is what happened at that Three Amigos meeting last week in Washington, because it was not as friendly a meeting as we have been led to believe. And thanks to our friends over at Black Locks Reporter, we learn that President Biden has, oh, what do you know, suddenly slapped a new tariff on our softwood lumber. Yeah. Six days after the meeting, we learn about this bomb that Biden will be increasing our lumber tariffs from 9% to 17.9%. That's not a small number. And frankly, it does not really speak well for this new warm relationship with warm and cozy Biden, who is much worse of a protectionist than that other guy, Trump. And it's funny because you think back to what Biden said just last week, you know, Canada's his easiest relationship. Well, yeah, because we let them steamroll over us. And apparently none of these protection measures or, you know, details were worked out in the trade agreement. So we're not protected at all from this protectionism. And in the House today, you had Christian Freeland say, this is extremely disappointing. No, disappointment to me would be getting an ice cream and then dropping it on the sidewalk before I take my first lick, okay? That's what I look at as disappointment. Lumber tariffs will devastate our major export of this material that brings $7.6 billion a year into this country, right? And it's going to lead to a number of shutdowns of lumber mills across the already battered province of BC. This isn't disappointing. It's devastating. So maybe... You know, reporters can tear themselves away from the vaccine mandates and actually demand to know why the prime minister didn't see this coming. I mean, how are we supposed to build back better when the guy next door to us, an ally, is intent on screwing us every which way? Whether it's Keystone XL, electric vehicles, and now this massive tariff on lumber. I don't know. Are we building back better with Lego? Did I miss something? I mean, it's not disappointing. I mean, I'm simply dumbfounded at what a pushover we have in power. Although it takes some solace, one Democratic senator is now actually pushing and fighting the president to have Keystone reversed because they're desperate for oil. And we've got it. So at least we've got someone on board. It's just too bad. It's not someone in this country. Here we go again with public health changing course when it comes to things like masks and plexiglass. And you'll remember at the start of this pandemic, Dr. Told told us, ma- you know, told us, you know, masks could be more dangerous. Don't wear them. I mean, the real story is we didn't have enough supply. And so then in May 2020, Tam reversed course and said, got to wear masks. 
So we all went out. We got our big collection of masks. Also, we can go out in public. And now they say cloth masks don't really give us protection. And we're going to have to buy those medical grade canine 95 masks or respirator masks to protect us from the particles that hang in the air. And now they're telling us, well, you know, you spend all that money on plexiglass, tens of thousands for some businesses. Yeah, that doesn't work either. It's too dangerous. <sighs> Make up your mind. Dr. Neil Rao is an assistant professor, Department of Medicine over at the University of Toronto, also an infectious disease doctor. Good to have you, doctor. Hi there. You know, when you flip-flop messaging like this, this will make a lot of people who already don't want to wear masks and that just not want to do anything. So I want to be a bit forgiving here about what's happened. There's been a lot of evolving information since the pandemic began in terms of how the virus was spread. We even had people saying that it wasn't spread unless you had symptoms in the early days of February. So, and many experts who are still on TV were saying it too. So you've got a situation where the information kept evolving. And the other big change that happened with COVID-19 is that we started telling people to wear masks, not to protect themselves, but to protect other people from a person who has the virus, which is a very novel reason to wear a mask. And now we know it doesn't actually work that well, as you've said. So I'm trying to be forgiving and paint the, the history here to remind people why the guidance kept changing. But I think we should say something positive, too. Yes, this virus does spread really easily. It spreads like smoke in a room, like secondhand smoke, so to speak. But if you've had the vaccine, for almost everybody who's had the vaccine, even if you get it, you're going to be protected from ending up in a hospital or on a breathing machine, or dying. A small group of people who get reinfected or who get an infection despite being vaccinated can actually end up in hospital and do badly and even end up in an ICU. We're talking about elderly people, people who've had bone marrow transplant, uh, organ transplant, mm -hmm. severe disease. You know, the, the, the people who, if the flu got them, could also put them in hospital, all right? But still, for the most part, the vaccines are a success, and the other piece that is a success, for better or worse, is that a lot of people have had the actual disease. Like in Northwest Toronto, people working in factories and they live in apartment buildings, they've had the disease. Natural immunity is very durable. It might be even more durable than the vaccine. And if you have the vaccine and then you get the infection on top, you're getting kind of a booster out of the natural infection that is even more robust than getting yet another booster of the vaccine. That could be the way things go. So I don't think people should be freaking out so much about the potential of getting an infection now that they're vaccinated, mask or not. And we have to start thinking about whether masks are really the answer or whether we should start protecting the people who are most vulnerable with right. either reinfection or with infection despite mm -hmm. vaccination. So we have to start focusing and thinking about long-term care. I mean, we've got a challenge on our hands at work when I'm seeing patients who are working with vulnerable patients, we have different challenges from what people should think about out in the community. Yeah, I mean, this is going to hit real hard for businesses who are told, you know, you have to get this certain kind of plexiglass, get it up. They spent a lot of money on this. And so to hear that, oh, yeah, don't use it is going to really anger them. I want to ask you, though, doctor. What you make of um, Andrea Horvath, who not too long ago was against vaccine mandates, and then when it wasn't politically uh, popular, she completely reversed course. But today she's coming out and saying that kids 5 to 11 should be mandated to get the COVID vaccine, despite the fact that, as you know, NASI came out just a few days ago and said, look, it's a parental choice. Not everyone's going to make the choice you want them. Respect it. Let's not uh, polarize this issue. 
Yeah, well, it's gone from a muted recommendation, do it if you want, into something close to a mandate. I call it being ball and told for kids. Mm. And it's sad <laughs> to see political leaders jumping on the bandwagon. I jokingly mooted the idea that we would have vaccine mandates for kids on Roy Green's show a few mm. weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And it's not actually yeah, a joke. You know? know, but this is this is a sad thing to see that it's evolving into something like being voluntold or we say, hey, listen, you're, it's not mandatory, but your kids can't have any outdoor activities <laughs> or group activities. You know, that's voluntold. Right. So I, I really don't like the evolution. We have to be more muted when it comes to kids, because for kids, we're giving the vaccine less for their direct benefits and more for an indirect benefit for the people around them. In other words, they may right. not spread it to right. other people. The other problem with the vaccine mandates is that they assume that by giving the vaccine, we have stopped transmission. It's true that you lower your risk of getting infection, and that might reduce your risk of transmitting. But as time goes on, that benefit also drops, and you have this waning immunity problem, and you can still have transmission from people who are vaccinated if they're infected. That's been shown in household studies in in, in the United Kingdom. So we, we have to be careful. We don't overstate our expectations of the vaccine. It's not the measles vaccine, which stops this virus in its tracks, and it's not polio vaccine. It's a different virus. But sadly, guys like yourself who are are level-headed and, uh, you know, don't, you know, have the biggest voice in this market. And so we just keep getting inundated with the politicization of this issue, which I think is uh, is dangerous. Um, And then they're talking now of infants and babies and toddlers getting this shot. Um, That's a whole (laughs) – and again, mandating that. Maybe can boost them every three months just to make make it even more more, more comprehensive. I mean – That's the problem. This is the slippery slope that I talked about. This is just, there comes a point where we have to accept some degree of risk. I'm not saying we willfully uh, march it into nursing homes and bring choir groups in, okay? I'm just saying we have to think about being strategic and pragmatic. We have achieved an amazing thing. 90% of Canada has had two doses of vaccine above age 12. Mm -hmm. We've never achieved this in our history with any other vaccine. And instead of being happy, we start talking about how things are bad. I, it's almost like people enjoy a rain rainstorm. I don't know. Now we're talking about variants. So frankly, there could well be that new variant from South Africa and Botswana arriving on our shores soon. And all of our restrictions to try and keep variants out don't actually work. We've seen them fail time and time again. So we have to be ready to face the music, mitigate, not eliminate. You can't eliminate the virus, but you can hold back the impact of the virus by doing some things. The question is, what are those some things? Are we going to stop hockey? Are we going to stop Raptors games? Are we going to stop concerts? Are we going to stop people's abilities to make a living and put them at home on CERB one more time? I mean, there's a point where we can't keep doing this if they're not going to end up in the ICU or the hospital. Yeah. Well, it's. I'd like to say, no, it's not going to happen, but I, I no longer believe it because I do, like you think, that some people are obsessed with being locked up. All right, Dr. Neil Raul, I've got to let you go on that, but I always appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. That is Dr. Neil Raul, who is one of the most measured, I think, uh, other than, who else do I like? I really like Dr. Fulford uh, when I talk about pediatric issues, too. All right, great to have you here. So the question, will a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing games do anything meaningful or will it actually make things worse with China? And there's a lot of debate on if we should or shouldn't be going to the Beijing games. And those calls are just getting louder with concern that tennis star Peng Shui is uh, being held by the Chinese government over these sex assault allegations she brought against a high ranking Chinese official. But what do these boycotts accomplish? 
And there have been boycotts, of course, of past games. In 1980, we had the Moscow Games, which were boycotted by both politicians and athletes over the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And then in 1984, the Soviets retaliated, skipping the LA Games. But now we're talking about diplomatic boycotts of the Beijing Games. You'll see the politicians stay home and then the athletes attend. But as my next guest writes in a great op-ed for the Globe and Mail, not only is that approach wimpy, it could actually put our athletes in danger because unlike Moscow, where hostage taking was out of bounds, we do know China very much does believe in hostage taking. Eric Morse is a retired Canadian diplomat and an active member of the Royal Canadian Military Institute. He was also involved in the 1980 Moscow boycott campaign with the Canadian Department of External Affairs. Good to have you. Thank you, uh, Alex. Uh, just before we go farther into it, I am required to make the usual disclaimer that anything I say does not reflect the views of the Military Institute. No, of course no. not. There we got the clarification. Right. But you're certainly qualified to speak on this. Um, and you would know, like over the last week, Joe Biden declared that uh, the U.S. would have a diplomatic boycott and then he reversed course last week. Justin Trudeau has been silent on this issue. But I think you make it pretty clear that if any boycott is going to take place when it comes to Beijing, it's got to be all or nothing because halfway would be dangerous. Halfway, well, halfway would be ineffective. It would be dangerous. Uh, and... Uh... Um, I mean, one of the things that you have to consider is that a boycott is always symbolic. It does not in and of itself uh, achieve anything on the global stage, but it does deliver a rebuke and an insult. And the Chinese are so susceptible to insult at this point that uh, you'd better really consider what you're doing before you do it. Right. And, and, and you reference um, IOC member Dick Pound, who's Canadian, uh, went through the events of the 1980s and notes that this situation could spin out of control very easily. So what, what is meant by that? What does, you know, spinning out of control look like? Uh, it, can, it can look like many things. I'll go back one Olympics before Moscow. In 1976, Canada mm -hmm. and the IOC and the world we're so focused on the Taiwan-China spat and whether Taiwan should be allowed to compete at the Olympics that it took us a day to notice that the entire African contingent had walked out of Montreal. And that's, what, that's one thing that can spin out of control. Some, somebody does something and somebody else doesn't even notice. But we spent two years after that 1976 walkout trying to make sure that the African community would come to the Edmonton Commonwealth Games. Interesting. But, you know, there's so much debate over this. I mean, in my heart of hearts, I don't want any participation in this games. And I don't say that to punish the athletes, but given China's behavior, intolerable behavior, which should be punished, and you can do it from the angle of the Uyghur Muslims being um, you know, uh, forced into labor camps, or the two Michaels, uh, national security issues, the list is endless with China, Hong Kong, Taiwan. But, um, you know, it doesn't look like we're going to get that kind of boycott. Uh, and so there is this, I think, feeling in Canada that it's wrong to go to these games. But I don't get the sense that the Trudeau government would actually want to make any statement uh, regarding China because they're not uh, seen as strong enough at all on this issue. It would surprise me if they did. Now, uh, 
Remember, none of this was on the radar seven days ago. Uh, calls for boycotts were scattered, yes, but uh, I'm, I'm actually surprised at the feed that feedback that I'm getting. If there has been any objection to the idea of boycotting uh, in my feedback, I haven't seen it. Uh, mm -hmm. And that certainly wasn't the case in 1980 because there was huge debate throughout the winter and spring of um, 1980 until Pierre Trudeau made it very clear to the Canadian Olympic Committee that he wouldn't have them going to Beijing and they cooperated. Right. And obviously, it would be deeply, sorry, Moscow. Sorry, Moscow. It would be very embarrassing for the Chinese government if there were, you know, boycotts and all the rest of it. The bottom line is, they want these games to go on. They want to continue spreading their propaganda that everything's fine and dandy. Um, but you know, are our athletes not at risk anyway, uh, Eric? Because, the, as you well know, um, you know, a guy like. Ennis Cantor, who the Boston Celtics NBA player, who's been very vocal about China, speaking back to their oppression and all the rest, calling for boycotts. If there's anyone in these athletic teams or athletes on the Canadian team that have been spoke, you know, outspoken on China or media attends and they've been outspoken on China, they are at risk of being pulled away and taken in by the Chinese it, government. It is or harassed. It's impossible mm -hmm. to weigh a risk like that. It's impossible to quantify it because it's hypothetical and you can only go on what's already happened. But if, if I were going, I wouldn't. Meaning what? If you were well, going, you wouldn't criticize. Would, well, I mean, but they also could have said something in the past. I might've said something in the past. I certainly said something now. True. <laughs> yes, you did. And so how do you see this playing out, Eric? Because I think it's like we're damned if we do, damned if we don't. But there are a lot of people that are not comfortable with rewarding China, you know, and their behavior by going to these games and, and by attending these games and not standing up to anything. We just feed into the propaganda that they can well, then feed their people. I, th I think you're right about that, but I don't see how it plays out. I really don't see a clear path to what happens now. In other words, nothing. it's easier to do nothing to take a stand? And that very well might be. Um, I mean, the Canadian Olympic Committee, for every obvious reason, is very opposed to this. They say, they've, they've said consistently, we're going. Uh, that, will, that will happen until and unless somebody decides to persuade them to change their mind. Uh, but going back to 1980-84 again, uh, a, a bit of an anecdote. As it happened, I shared a dentist's office with the Soviet ambassador. Hmm. And um, we met up in the waiting room one time in early 84. <laughs> and he said, you know, Mr. Morris, I haven't said this to my government. I won't say this to my government, but I know what you do and I'll say it to you. Uh, I don't think we should go to Los Angeles. And I said, well, that's interesting. Uh, why don't you think so? Knowing perfectly well why he thought so. And he said, because those SOBs didn't come to Moscow. And I said, well, you know why that happened? And he said, yes. He said, your alliance passed judgment on us. You passed a moral judgment on the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Great powers do not judge each other. <laughs> And I said, would you, would you really have preferred that we'd sent military advisors to Afghanistan? He just looked at me. He said, we did it in Vietnam. 
there you go. If you were in charge then today, I mean, because the IOC is going to do what it does. It's going to protect its own interests and they will go to the games no matter what. Yeah. But if you were in charge, where what would you be doing? Would you be pulling right out altogether or would you just uh, well, go and hope for the best? Remember that we can't pull out altogether. We're not the United States. The United States government actually has legal leverage over its Olympic Committee. And if it, even if it didn't, Carter just threatened to pull all the passports. We can't take away citizens' passports and we can't tell the Canadian Olympic Committee what to do. Uh, we can say, if you go, your funding is going to be looking a little thin for a while. Uh, and that might persuade them and it might not persuade them. Uh, but this is all very, very fast moving. And I don't care to predict what's going to happen in another week. Mm -hmm. True. Yeah, yeah, whether or not this tennis player actually shows up with proof or not. Well, I think I mean, he should show up in a nice neutral venue uh, uh, without uh, suspicious looking people around her, but I'm not sure that that's going to happen. The Women's, no. tennis, the Women's Tennis Federation aren't buying this at all. Are you? No. Right. And so not a lot of people in the international community buy all this. And so here we kind of go, we're like playing this charade, um, you know, and we're you know, punished by Beijing or China if, if we don't go. And then if we do go, we're just rewarding very bad behavior. I think that's what is so, you know, such a frustration. That, I, for and, and that, I, my, my reading on the responses I've got to this article suggests that that's very much the view of Canadians who are looking. Yeah. Fascinating times. Very much, uh, very much appreciate your perspective on this and uh, your time joining us because I know you're very busy. Thanks so much. Th thanks so much, Mr. Morse. Thank you, Alex. So did the Trudeau government put this country's national security at risk allowing a Chinese-owned China mobile company that has ties to Huawei to operate in Canada unchecked for the last five years? This is a, an important story flying under the radar, but China Mobile Canada provides mobile services, including things like prepaid call plans, but it doesn't own or operate telecommunication network facilities. Instead, they partner up with companies like TELUS Communications, and it allows its wireless service then to be carried through its network. And now the Trudeau government is in court fighting to shut this company down or force it to sell its stakes on the grounds that China Mobile is a threat to our national security. Well, duh. I mean, in 2019, the U.S. moved to shut the same company down out of concern that China Mobile exploits its telephone network by collecting intelligence and threatening U.S. national security. And so here we are, once again, trying to play catch up. Christian Lubrecht is professor over at Royal Military College and Queen's University. He's also an expert on security and all things defense, does work with the McDonald Laurier Institute, and somehow he's also an author. He's got a new book out called Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft. Good to have you, Professor. Hello, and thanks. Uh, nice to be back. Yeah, I haven't had you on for a while, and I saw this headline. I thought, hmm, what would Christian say? Is this a concern? Yeah, I would say it's a concern. I mean, there was never a security review of this particular Chinese state-owned company, and yet it's found a loophole to go around by using our telecommunications to use its product. And so what have we been doing all these years? So uh, whether this is a concern or not, let me quote from the Federal Communications Commission in the United States 
when it banned the uh, revoked the license for the largest Chinese telecom provider, Chinese Telecom. And so here's a couple of quotes from that decision. China Telecom is subject to exploitation, influence, and control by the Chinese government and is highly likely to be forced to comply with Chinese government requests without sufficient legal procedures subject to independent judicial oversight. The decision goes on to say uh, that the Chinese government ownership and control raises significant national security and law enforcement risks by providing opportunities for the company and the Chinese government to access, store, disrupt, and or misroute US communications. Now, inherently, if that's the case in the US, of course, the same applies to Canada. But mm -hmm. in Canada, we somehow seem to be, as usual, behind the eight ball and quite happy to have our adversaries give them unfettered access to our most valuable commodity, which is our data. Well, exactly. But this uh, company, as I understand, has ties to Huawei. And I assume then, uh, Christian, and correct me where I'm wrong, that Huawei is probably doing the same thing. I mean, they're not, they don't have a telecommunication network, but they've got lots of product that people buy. Are they also using this technique where they, you know, they are, they must be uh, sidling up and, and getting involved with the communications companies and doing the same thing? Right, because ultimately, so there's a couple of ways that you can go about this. So one is you get the switches into the network so that through backdoors and those switches or potential exploits of those backdoors, you can then tap the network uh, either to run intelligence on it, to throttle the network, uh, to stop the network completely, um, to uh, reroute some of the traffic of that network as China, for instance, has done and has shown that it can do. Uh, the other is to try to plug into the network as a whole. So this is what um, China Telecom um, tried to, so China Mobile, for instance, tried to do when it was banned, its license was revoked in 2019. It was cited just the ability <clears throat> to plug into the New Year's network uh, uh, posed a significant risk. The other consideration here is uh, even though these are not companies that most Canadians, for instance, um, uh, or Americans for that matter, would be doing business with, uh, there are a significant number of Chinese, uh, uh, for instance, that visit this country, uh, but also individuals who are resident here who have their regular plans uh, with China Telecom, China Mobile, just the way you and I do if we go to another country and we might be roaming or using our data service. And that in itself then means uh, that they have to plug into our network. So even though Canadians might say, well, this is a company that, you know, I can't buy a phone from them, I can't get on a network from them. Uh, nonetheless, the company poses significant, uh, significant risks. And the context here is, of course, the you remember the Trump administration precisely pushing back on Huawei mm -hmm. and on allies, uh, the UK and Australia, which then followed suit in, in banning Huawei, and then the effort to try to uh, mitigate the risk posed by other Chinese uh, equipment telecommunications providers under national security concerns. Um, and so this is, I think, simply a follow-on, given that our networks with the US and tele telecommunications networks are so tied in with one another, there would have been significant pressure behind the scenes once the US decided it was going to revoke uh, licenses for China Mobile and China Telecom for Canada to do likewise. Well, I mean, I mean, no wonder our Five Eye partners are so irritated with us. They're now kind of shutting us out of uh, arrangements and deals um, and just kind of moving on. But like, I just wonder, like, how did I mean, it's all great that the Trudeau government's now in court trying to, to shut this thing down. But like, how did we get that so far behind? And, and, and how would this have evaded any kind of security reviews? 
Well, so I think there's at least three reasons. One is that unlike uh, Australia uh, and the United States, at least, we don't have a clear strategy on how to cope with China. In the recent throne speech, uh, we got <laughs> Hold some... on a second, Christian. We don't have any strategy. I mean, come on. That's funny. But anyway, go on. Well, I think the, bro the broader problem is we've been missing in action in the Asia-Pacific in general and with regards to our allies in the Indo-Pacific, that is to say the United States, Australia, Japan, and India uh, for years. So not just under this government, but under the previous government. And of course, that then also means we don't have an engagement strategy of how exactly to deal with China. And so we try to muddle through the way Canada does on most policies. Um, and on most of our policies, we just draft behind the US when it comes to foreign policy, right? We just kind of sort of do it. That's worked well for us for decades, really, <laughs> since the end of the Second World War. We haven't had to have much of an independent foreign policy. You just sort of draft behind the US, and that's worked out well for us. Well, now it turns out uh, drafting behind the US, for somehow people in Ottawa have decided that's perhaps no longer interesting for Canada, um, or that it's going to try to go its own way. And so, of course, we shouldn't be surprised uh, when folks in Washington, on the one hand, decide that something poses a serious national security risk, not just to themselves, but to their allies and partners on whose communication network, for instance, the United States uh, relies in part, um, and that uh, the United States would be surprised when all of a sudden it makes a request when it comes to secure and defense to Canada, which has been, of course, a, a valued, loyal ally uh, for decades, if we think of NATO, if we think of NORAD, and all of a sudden Canada throws its hands up and says, uh, I hear no evil, see no evil, what are you talking about? <laughs> Exactly. Well, yeah. And, and look, they signaled in the throne speech, maybe you know, a change of approach to China. However, they're using this term Indo-Pacific. Uh, you know, they won't come right out and say, you know, we will have a new strategy with China. They won't even mention that because uh, they're wimps. Uh, so they want to skirt around the edges. And I guess they hope that, you know, speaking between the lines and, and um, relying on our, our regional part partners in the Indo-Pacific, they'll, they'll do all the heavy lifting. But there's no question. They're going to have to make a decision on Huawei at some point, Christian. They can't just pretend this is not a thing. And we do have to have a plan. We have to stand up for Taiwan. But I, this new Indo-Pacific strategy, if they think this is their Chinese strategy, they're delusional, more delusional than I thought. Um, I am encouraged that at least behind the scenes, the government does seem to be appearing to push back. But as I say, I think the problem is, of course, that it's not because somebody in Ottawa decided that this was the right thing to do or the right strategy to pursue. My guess right. is that we're doing this because there's immense pressure from the United States to get these companies out of our North American networks. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think what is really needed here is for someone to understand where the puck is going. Um, and that this is a country that clearly can't be trusted um, on uh, when, when it comes to uh, uh, many things in the world, in the sense that uh, it abuses um, uh, other countries, it abuses uh, its privileges, uh, and it instrumentalizes international law for its own benefit. Um, and so why would we take a company, uh, whether it's on Huawei or it's on China Mobile or China Telecom, why would we take a company uh, that we would allow to do business in Canada when there's no reciprocity and a Canadian company could never do business in China on the same mm -hmm. principles? That alone for me is enough for government to say that clearly this company should not be able to compete in Canada if Canadian companies couldn't compete on par in the same way in China. Yeah, I mean, there's a hundred reasons more why we should just cut them off. But nonetheless, uh, it is not my choice to make. Christian, appreciate your clarity and information on this and your insight always. And uh, nice chatting with you again.
Thanks for drawing attention to these important stories. Take care. Always. Christian Leprec joining us. He is, of course, an expert on all things defense and security, but he also has his new book out. He talks about a lot of the stuff we just did. It's called Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft. And the title is actually a lot longer than that. So I'm giving the abbreviated view. But hey, great stocking stuffer. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us live Monday through Friday, starting 630 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio.